good morning, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for coming today. As we gather for worship this morning, we're going to do all the things that we normally do in our worship service. We're going to sing to the Lord. We're going to pray. We're going to hear from God's word. We're going to come to God's table. All the things we normally do. We're also going to do something we don't normally do, which is instead of one sermon in the middle of the service, we're going to break it up into smaller bits throughout the service to explain why we do what we do, sort of like I'm doing right now. Many of us were born into this tradition, the Anglican tradition. We've been doing these things since before we can remember. Some of you have come into this tradition recently, and you don't understand why we do some of these things. It's sort of like sometimes our muscles do things without us even having to think about it. Well, sometimes when it comes to worship, when it comes to what we do when we gather on Sundays, it's good to think about why do we do what we do in the way that we do it. So, for instance, in a minute, we're going to sing. Why do we sing? We'll actually say it this morning in Psalm 47, verse 6. The Bible commands us to sing praises to our God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. I love what Psalm 96, verse 1 says. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. During our service, we'll sing songs and use music of different styles. Why do we do that? Well, it's not just to make everybody happy. It's because God is worthy of it all. Psalm 145 says that God is great and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. His greatness can't be praised just by one style or two styles or three styles. Charles Wesley said, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. We're going to enter behind the cross. Why do we do that? Well, every time that cross comes down the aisle and goes back out again, it's preaching a sermon to us. It's reminding us that the cross makes the way. Hebrews 10.20 says that Jesus on the cross opened for us a new and living way. Just by his death on the cross and his rising again on Easter, he made a way for us to approach God's throne. He made a way for us to worship God. And the cross coming up the aisle is also a reminder to us how God leads his people in triumphant procession. He did it through the sea in the book of Exodus. He did it through his son on the cross, and he will lead us behind himself into heaven one day. And then after we process in, our service begins with an acclamation of praise. That's so that the minister's first words aren't, how are y'all feeling today? Or are you ready to worship today? Because the truth is, we're not always feeling that great. The truth is, we're not always ready to worship. Some of you might have had World War III in your car on the way uh, to church this morning. So the first words out of our mouths are simply acclamations of God, of who he is, what he's done that deserves our praise. So this morning we'll say, Alleluia, Christ is risen. Next Sunday we'll switch to, Blessed be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because our worship is initiated by God. Our worship is not initiated by us and our feelings and how we're doing, because we're not always doing that great. But God is always God. Jesus is always risen. God is always worthy of our praise. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, the prophet sees the absolute holiness of God. He beholds the utter glory of God. And the next thing that happens is he gets on his knees and he repents of his sin. He says, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. That's why 
after our acclamation of praise and after we sing a song of praise, we immediately say, God, help. We do a prayer for purity. Help me to worthily magnify your holy name. All of this is done in the power of the Spirit this morning. Would you pray with me before we begin? Oh, Father, would you wake us up this morning by your Spirit where we come now to worship you? Would you stir our hearts, stir our minds, stir our emotions that we would delight in you, oh God, that we would delight in singing praise to you. We would delight in your word. We would delight in the Eucharist. Oh, Father, send your spirit. Wake us up to praise you as you deserve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing. What we just prayed there just now is what we call the collect of the day. A collect is simply a prayer that's meant to gather the intentions of the people and to focus our worship into one succinct prayer. These are prayers that change week in and week out in response to the church calendar. So you might have noticed that prayer we just prayed had themes along the lines of ascension. That's because on Thursday, this past Thursday, it was the the Feast of the Ascension when we remember that Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Next week, our collect of the day will involve praying uh, prayers around Pentecost, themes of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming in power because next Sunday in the church calendar, we celebrate Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus' disciples in power. Now, these colics almost always follow a formula. It's pretty straightforward. First, there's an address to God and his character or action in the world on our behalf. We always start with God, with God's character, with God's action. Second, there's a simple and straightforward request. Our thoughts, our prayers are gathered into one single request to God. Third, there's an invocation, which is an appeal to the Lord's authority, and a doxology, a declaration of praise. And lastly, together we pray amen, which literally means, let it be so. The people of God together declaring, may this be so. And then we are seated for the readings. Now, in our tradition, every time we have a communion service, there's a reading from the gospel. There's also usually another one to three readings, usually some combination of Old Testament, New Testament, and Psalm in addition to that one gospel reading. And when we read all of the readings, it covers a huge chunk of the Bible in a three-year cycle. We're usually seated for the readings. In general, in our tradition, we stand to worship or respond to God. We sit to listen and learn, and we kneel to pray. We kneel to pray. It's one of the things I love about our tradition, that our bodies are invited to join too. This past Friday, one of my duties as a priest here at Truro was to preside over our kindergarten graduation for our preschool and kindergarten. 
And let me tell you, six-year-olds get the use of the body much better than we do. We get older, we get a little bit stiffer, we certainly get a bit more self-conscious. These six-year-olds, they get it. When they're excited, they jump up and down like this, right? When they're receiving something, they go like this. These six-year-olds knew when we're praying for someone, we do this, right? When we're receiving a blessing, like this, stand and sit and kneel using our bodies in worship. We do this too. That's why you see us sometimes do the sign of the cross. We're engaging our bodies in worship. It's why when we come to the offertory and sing the doxology, if you look around you, you'll see people going like this. We're offering ourselves back to God in response to him, even as we're offering our tithes and our offerings. We engage our bodies in worship because they matter and because our physical posture helps us to engage with God in worship. So now I think we're ready for our first reading. Thank you, Jill. You'll notice after most of our readings, the reader ends the reading by declaring the word of the Lord. And we respond in thankfulness, thanks be to God. We declare our thankfulness to the text, but we do this in response to the reminder that the Bible is not just some book full of nice ideas or a conglomeration of stories that are maybe helpful, but it's actually the word of God. That's why, after these readings, we're reminded the word of the Lord, and we're invited to respond in thanksgiving. Thanks be to God. And then we stand for the gospel. Will you stand with me? We stand out of respect, to be sure, just like we would for the national anthem or something. But we also stand because the gospel requires us to have ready feet. Standing reminds us that the gospel of Jesus is an invitation. It's a call to action. It requires a response from us. And for this reading, the priest or the deacon always moves to the center. Have you noticed? We don't do it from the lectern. We always move to the center, and often we even move out into the center of the congregation. As a reminder, among other things, that for us, Jesus is always at the center. Well, now for a four-minute sermon about a sermon. I want to ask a couple of questions of myself and for you to think about. What is a sermon for? What is a sermon supposed to accomplish? What is the job of a preacher? What should the expectations be from the congregation? The short answer is that a sermon is for the people of God to hear the word of God taught by a servant of God for the glory of God. The congregation should expect this and a preacher should pray to deliver this. And if a congregation grows to not expect this, or if a preacher doesn't aim to deliver this, then right at the heart of our worship service is a massive vacuum. In John chapter 12, verse 21, we're told of men from Greece who approached Philip. Philip was a disciple of Jesus. 
And these men came to Philip and asked him a question that should resound in the ear of every preacher every time he or she sits down at their desk to prepare or every time he or she stands up in a pulpit to preach. And those men from Greece asked Philip this in John 12, 21. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Sir or ma'am, we wish to see Jesus. That is what you should be asking of the preacher every time he or she stands up in this pulpit. We wish to see Jesus. You could have it printed on poster board if you wanted to and hold it up for us to see when we get up here. Because this pulpit doesn't exist for a person. This pulpit doesn't exist for a personality. This pulpit exists for proclamation, for the proclamation of God's word and for the proclamation of the gospel. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what Mike thinks. It doesn't matter what Mary thinks. It doesn't matter what Stephen thinks. It matters what God thinks. And it matters what God has said. And God has said what he thinks through his word. If you want to hear somebody's opinion, you have plenty of places you can go to hear people's opinions. News channels, news feeds, newspapers, talk radio, talk shows, talking heads. In the 20 to 25 minutes between the gospel reading and the Nicene Creed, the job of the preacher is not to simply be one more talking head to share his or her opinion with you. The job of the preacher is to proclaim Christ and him crucified through the word of God and to do it the next Sunday and the next Sunday and the next Sunday. We submit ourselves under the authority of scripture. This is why the preacher should devote time during his or her week to plumb the depths of scripture, to study it, to ensure they're understanding it and teaching it faithfully. It's one of the ways that we show we love you. It's one of the ways that we show we take seriously our responsibility to shepherd the flock of God. Time spent hunched over our desks during the week so that by the time we stand up here, we have a feast prepared for us all to enjoy. We feast upon the scriptures. We see Jesus in them. In my previous church, I served under a wonderful man, pastor, preacher named John Yates. And he told me one time about how when he first came to the Falls Church in the 1970s, there wasn't much of an appetite there for the scriptures. He even got in trouble when he had them put Bibles in the backs of the pews. And God gave him a vision one time, and it was a vision of his church at that time as a ship stuck in ice. And in order to move the ship, he had to melt the ice. And in order to melt the ice, he had to light hundreds of little bonfires around the perimeter of the ship. Those bonfires were the preaching of God's word every Sunday, the opening of God's word in people's homes or in community groups, a businessman or a businesswoman opening the Bible on the metro on the way into the city. Over time, God's word melts the ice around a church. Over time, God's word melts ice around our hearts. Sir, we wish to see Jesus, they asked Philip. And so I ask you, on behalf of the clergy, ask that of us. Ask that of us, that we would 
help you see Jesus, that we would preach the word faithfully, boldly, uncompromisingly, with love for God, with love for his scriptures, with love for you in our hearts. Now, you're going to be shocked by this next statement, I know. Our sermons are not always home runs. But with God's help, each one is a little bonfire. And the next Sunday, another little bonfire. And the next Sunday. That's what a sermon is for. That's what you should expect. So pray for your preachers. And let me pray for us all now. Well, Father, I pray that your word would go forth from these pulpits and on this campus and that your gospel would be proclaimed and that anyone who stands up here would decrease and that you would increase. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. By this point in our service, we've heard the, the word read. We will have heard the word preached. And we come to the creed. We come to the creed. The creed is that point in our service when we respond to the scriptures and the expounding of the scriptures by saying, I believe. I believe. It's an opportunity for us to join together and say, yes, I believe that. Yes, I believe that. It's an opportunity for us to be centered together, not just in response to what we've heard, but also in looking anticipatorily, is that the right word? With anticipation towards the feast that is to come at the Lord's table. As we declare together, this is who we believe God to be and what we believe he has done in and for the world. We join our voices with Christians around the world and throughout the centuries who've declared these truths as well, who have responded to the word of God proclaimed with an I believe. So I invite you now to stand as we declare our faith together in the words of the Nicene Creed. Now, part of the reason we stand for the creed is because after 20 or 25 or 30 or 35 minutes of listening, Lord knows we need to stretch our creaky knees before we kneel for prayer. But part of it also is because we're, again, using our bodies, acknowledging with our bodies that we're responding to God. We're on our feet, ready to go. After we declare our faith, though, we turn to our knees in prayer. So you may be seated. We'll kneel in just a moment. We've heard the word proclaimed and the proper response is prayer. This is the pattern not just of Christian worship, but the Christian life. We receive from God and we respond to God. God gives and we give in return. We receive his word in the scriptures read and explained, and we respond to the God who speaks by saying, I believe, or we believe in the creed, and then in prayer. We kneel in submission and humility, knowing that by doing so, we're engaging our bodies in the work of prayer, and we're mimicking the pattern and practice of Christians throughout the centuries. Our pattern of prayer together on Sunday mornings is one of intercession, 
We intercede for the church and for the world, just as Scripture tells us Jesus intercedes for us. It is here that we often name the reality of the world. We name the brokenness of the world. We acknowledge what's going on in our world today. This past week has been particularly difficult again. This is where, as Christians, we begin to deal with the things in our world that trouble us most. We pray for each other. We pray for the church, even as we pray for the world. So I invite you now to kneel if you're able. Otherwise, you may remain seated as we come to the Lord together in prayer. Before we think about what happens in communion, before we think about what happens when we come to the rail, we need to start by reminding ourselves what happened on the cross. What happened on the cross when Jesus paid for all of our sins, when Jesus paid the debt we could never pay, when Jesus reconciled us to God, when Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. When Jesus accomplished this work on the cross, Jesus declared that his work was finished. Jesus' saving work on the cross, Jesus' atoning work on the cross is finished. It happened once for all. It is done. And so it's the finished work of Jesus Christ that makes it possible for us to approach God's throne. It's the finished work of Jesus on the cross that makes it possible for us to come to this table. So it's in light then of his finished work. It's under that banner that we talk about what happens at communion. What happens when we come forward to the rail. And the first thing that happens is we remember and we proclaim. We remember and we proclaim. And Jesus himself told us to do this. You'll hear this in a minute, like we hear it every week in our liturgy, that Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks. He took the wine, he lifted the cup, and he said, whenever you eat this, or whenever you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. But Paul points out in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven that it's not just that we're remembering. We're also proclaiming. Paul puts it this way, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the first thing that happens. We remember and we proclaim because we forget, don't we? The hymn puts it this way, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We're all guilty of having gospel amnesia where we forget what God and Christ has secured for us vertically. And so we go around looking for it horizontally. And when we come to this table and we hear the story again and we hear it next Sunday, we remember again because we're going to forget again. And we proclaim again so we can proclaim it tomorrow. So we remember and we proclaim. But the second thing that happens is something that doesn't happen on this table. It's not something that happens in the heavenlies. It's something that happens in a, a work of the Holy Spirit right now in this place. Right now, the Holy Spirit is going to do a supernatural work in our hearts of applying the finished work of the cross 
the finished work that took place 2,000 years ago and applying it afresh by name to your heart right now in this place. That the Holy Spirit right here at 10520 Main Street, Fairfax, Virginia, on May 29th, 2022, as you come to the rail again with your hands outstretched, that God by his Holy Spirit is going to say to you by name, this is for you and for you and for you. It's a fresh in this moment by the Spirit application, truly, really, really, truly, God by his Spirit applying the finished work of the cross afresh to you and afresh to me. You'll notice when we pray for people oftentimes, we'll do something with our hands. We'll, we'll lay a hand on the person's shoulder to pray for them. And it's not because we think that there's any power in our hands. There's no power in my hand. There's no power in Mike's hand. The power is in God's hand. And when we lay a hand on someone's shoulder, it's a visual and a tangible reminder and application in that moment of a deeper spiritual reality of a spiritual activity that is truly happening. The bread and the wine then, in a sense, are God laying the nail-scarred hand of Jesus upon you when you come to this rail. And not just upon you intellectually, but within you, really. And it's as if God, by his Holy Spirit, is saying, as you drink this wine, this is for you the blood of Jesus that was spilt for you on the cross. Now notice that when you come forward for communion, you come empty-handed, all of us do. Come empty-handed. It's not like a church potluck where we all bring our own dishes and we end up making up a meal. No, this is God's meal. We bring nothing. That's how grace works. We come empty-handed. Martin Luther once said that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. We come empty-handed to the table. I love how the Kenyan communion liturgy puts it. It says, Christ is the host, we are his guests. Christ is the host, we are his guests. And when we come forward for communion, in just a few moments, it's the moment in our service when the veil between heaven and earth is awfully thin. And that as we come forward to God's table, we're reminded afresh that we join in with angels and with archangels and with all the company of heaven. And if you can imagine this rail continuing on into heaven, this is a picture for us of a heavenly feast. This is a picture for us of what we, what we will enjoy one day around his real table, really one day. Praise God. Praise God. Let's stand together and thank him. We come empty, but we leave full. And we don't leave full because of anything that we've done. We leave full because the Lord feeds us. He feeds us with his word. He feeds us in the sacrament of his body and blood. And so it is only right to give thanks. And so in our final closing prayer, we thank God for all that he's done. We thank him for feeding us. And then we ask that he would fill us again to send us out to do the work that he has given us to do. God loves us just the way that we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. 
And so he invites us to come empty, to be filled. And then he sends us out. He gives us work to do, joining him in his work. And it's in this prayer that we ask him to strengthen us for that work and to send us to do that work. And that work, well, it's to be witnesses. It's to be witnesses. We don't save anybody. Praise the Lord, Jesus does that. He has done that. He is doing that. He will do it. He invites us to bear witness to what he's done in us and for us and among us. Thanks be to God. So let us pray in thanksgiving. At the end of our service, God has the last word. And God's last word over us is his word of blessing. And you'll notice that the priest, when he or she pronounces the blessing, does the sign of the cross. Because if we did it like this, it might imply the blessing comes from us. But the cross is what appropriates God's blessing upon us. We came into our worship by way of the cross. We go out into the world by way of the cross. And God lavishes his love upon us by way of the cross. Sometimes the priest will use words from Numbers 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. Sometimes the celebrant will use words from the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling. Or from the book of Hebrews. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Our prayer book uses the words from Philippians 4, 7. The peace of God which passes understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. The dismissal is one final reminder that we don't go into the world alone, but that God goes with us and that we go with him together in joy and in the power of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the risen Christ together. So let us go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Alleluia.